All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time podcast. You kind of ask yourself the question when, whenever you start something new is what's what's the goal? And with language, I think that's a really difficult thing to do because, you know, you don't have say, oh, I want to play if you're a basketball player, I want to play in the NBA. What's the NBA of language learning? That is kind of what drew me to the project. We chose exceptionality specifically because it means that it's the exception to the rule. So most mm -hmm. people would not achieve this for whatever reason. We're not necessarily saying that being native-like is the highest level of proficiency because you could be native-like in different domains. Carrie had an experience where she was speaking with someone on the phone. She was speaking Italian with them. She's a, a L1 English speaker. And then she came in the next day and was like, oh, hello, I was speaking with Carrie, where's Carrie? And Carrie's like, oh, yes, I'm Carrie. And uh, the woman genuinely goes, you can't be Carrie. <laughs> the Carrie that I was speaking to was Italian woman. <laughs> the audacity. Uh, um, oh, so how dare you. The thing with Zoltan is that he was, I mean, he spent most of his career talking about motivation, right? Mm -hmm. But the man himself was just a very motivational person. He just brought so much of this energy to, to the project because he was so excited about it. Um, and I mean, even in some of his last emails to me, he said this project was like one of the most exciting ones that he had worked on and that he was just really happy to, to bring it to fruition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. To those of you who are new, each episode of our podcast is devoted to bringing the most recent, most innovative, and most insightful research applications into teacher education, language teaching, and language education. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our new Teacher Accelerator program, which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone. Our program isn't for everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community. We have live sessions. We have self-paced learning. And more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogme and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, -to, -one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. 
just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. We would love to have a conversation about your current situation and whether we can help you with any of these things. One of the questions that we always ask ourselves is why or how do some language learners triumph against all odds, even though some of them don't have any sort of extended periods of time learning a language in their adult lives? I think that was the perhaps the most important question that we asked ourselves, and we were lucky enough to have someone named Katarina Mensolopoulos who is basically a PhD student at the University of Nottingham in the UK to come on the show today to talk to us more about this book that she has co-written with the late Zoltan Dornier, Stories from Exceptional Language Learners Who Have Achieved Native-Like Proficiency, as well as the follow-up, Lessons from Exceptional Language Learners Who Have Achieved Native-Like Proficiency. Katarina has spent a lot of time in, perhaps a lot of years, I should say, working in academic publishing in the U.S. and in English language teaching um, in Japan. And her research interests basically include language learning motivation, exceptional language learning, multilingualism, and learner identity. This book provides a, an amazing analysis of how these successful language learners achieve this so-called gold standard for passing, which is, again, another very important word that those of you who are listening to this podcast will understand for passing for a native speaker. So we really hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. I'm going to be hosting this one with Andrew, and we have the illustrious presence of Katarina here with us, who is going to be talking about um, this book that she has um, co-authored with uh, Zoltan Dornier. And before we jump right into the book, I just wanted to say, first and foremost, welcome to our show, Katarina. It's, it's a great honor to have you here. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here. Um, thank you so much for having me. I kind of wanted to start with how I actually came across your profile and and the book, because I had no idea that there was such book being written. I remember I was actually on Twitter. And of course, on Twitter, people are constantly um, complaining or bickering, you know. And then I remember someone retweeting um, you mentioning the publication of this book. And I remember reading the title of that book and being immediately drawn to it because I very much like Andrew and Mike, we're very, very, very much into language learning and teaching. And this is basically what we do with Learn Your English. We're really trying to help teachers um, teach better lessons or become better teachers, but also help them inspire their students to become better language learners. So before we dive right into the book, the process of writing it, and, and talking about these stories of these exceptional learners, um, perhaps we could start by talking a little bit about you, like your background. How did you get into language education, your interests when it, come to, when it comes to language learning and teaching? Right, um, big question. So I 
I guess to start from the very beginning. So I grew up in Texas, um, but my mom was is uh, Indian and born in Uganda, but then moved to the UK. Um, and then my dad was Greek and moved to the UK as well for university. And then somehow, and they both ended up in Texas and had me. And so growing up, um, as you can imagine, I had a very different background from a lot of the people around me. And I did grow up in a, quite a diverse suburb, but not quite that mixed um, mm -hmm. of a background. And so there was this question always of where are you from, where are you from sort of thing. And so that made me that. And I think also my parents kind of celebration of all the different places that we were from fostered in me a very strong idea of, well, what is out there in the world? You know, curiosity for different cultures and different languages. Um, and so growing up, I always wanted to learn as many possible different languages uh, to the point where I actually went to a math and science focused high school because they were the only school that would allow me to take two languages at the same time, um, which was a lot of suffering in hindsight. But um, and so then when I went to university, I studied linguistics and um, the kind of linguistics that I studied there was more theoretical. And so at that point, I thought, OK, well, I went into this degree thinking that I really wanted to learn about how people learn languages. And instead of that, I learned about language itself. Um, mm. So then I decided to kind of take a step back um, and I moved to Japan to go and teach English mm. for a couple of years. And so then following that experience, I thought, well, actually, you know, this is something that I'm really passionate about. And I want to, I, because I had taught English, um, and I didn't feel very effective as a teacher. So I thought, well, there must be a better way of doing this. Like, why don't we, why don't we look at kind of, why don't I look at more of this sort of research that's going on um, to see how I can become better. And that sort of has led me down a chain of studies to a PhD now. So. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to circle back now to a couple of things that you you've mentioned. Um, I think the first one is, so you didn't really want to become a teacher. I think this is something that Andrew and I really talk a lot about is that nobody, we don't know a lot of people say like, I was born a teacher. I really wanted to do this. You kind of like stumbled upon, upon teaching, right? Was that, or was it something that you knew you wanted to do? I think I've always liked teaching in terms of kind of the mentoring aspect of teaching. Mm -hmm. But you're right in that I did just kind of stumble upon teaching itself. Um, it's interesting because so the program that I went on is JET, which is Japan Exchange and mm. Teaching Program. Right. And the thing that I like about the name there is because it is very much about exchange. And I think that teaching is an exchange, right? It's an exchange of knowledge, of mm -hmm. you know, identities, of of many different things. And so in a way, it's always something, the exchange of information. I mean, at one point I wanted to go into publishing, which is also about exchange. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's not that I always wanted to be a teacher or anything, but it, it also didn't, it wasn't strange to, to end mm -hmm. up there. Huh. And you also mentioned that you didn't feel like you were very effective as a teacher. And I'm wondering how, how did, how you, how did you develop the self-awareness to actually think to yourself, maybe I'm not doing that great of a job. Maybe there's something else that I could do to be better because not every teacher is like that. I'm not saying that 
Most teachers are not like that, but some teachers are very resistant to the idea of evolving and improving and and kind of like fine tuning their teaching chops. What was this? Maybe you can help us understand what was the moment when you realized, you know what, I need to learn more. I need to go back and really study and perhaps become, as you said, a more effective teacher. What was that moment like for you? I think it was from the very beginning because so um, with the JET program, you're actually hired on as an assistant language teacher. And so theoretically, you should you should be an assistant in the classroom. Um, and I didn't have, I mean, I did a degree, my bachelor's in linguistics, you know, not in teacher training or anything like that. And so I wasn't a trained teacher, but because the department that I was placed in was just very, um, they were very overburdened. And so when they, when I kind of came into the department and they gave me, you know, a little bit of like, okay, well, here you can plan some activities or plans and like half of lessons and things. And when they found that whatever I was doing was working, they're like, okay, well, you can just have the whole lesson. Or then the next semester, they were like, okay, well, you can design your own course, uh, have at it, you know? And so from the very beginning, I was very much like, I don't know how to do this. I haven't been trained. I'm not qualified for this. And they were always in the classroom, right? You know, um, making sure that I wasn't just off on my own mm -hmm. doing some crazy whatever. But um, but yeah, from the very beginning, it just felt like, okay, I need to 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 be better for these students because they deserve better, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I think also because I've had my fair share of bad language teachers. <laughs> and so mm. being very picky about them myself, I always kind of think back. And as a, because I'm also always still learning um, different languages, I always think, well, if I had me as a teacher, would I be happy with my teaching? That's um, a good question. A very good reflective question there. What I'm now, I'm curious, and we're going to be here forever now because there's so much in there. <laughs> what, <laughs> what criteria? When you said that you had teachers that you were not your favorite or you didn't like or whatever, what would you care to share criteria that formed that opinion? Um, I mean, I think there's 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 like so many different archetypes in my head of all the really terrible. There's so many. Um, but so one is someone who just simply doesn't speak the language and was hired on for some other job and then somehow got shoehorned in. Mm -hmm. So. You know, they just barely studied it or, you know, they wouldn't be able to hold a conversation, in it, which I think is such a tragedy. It just shouldn't ever happen. Um, the, That's un unfair for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but then in terms of like actual <laughs> teaching styles and things, um, I had one teacher who would she had these, these PowerPoints where she would just have a sentence in in the language and then be like okay so someone translate this into or they she had it in english and she's like okay someone translate this into english or into japanese or whatever and vice versa and then she would just wait for someone in the classroom to do it and there's only four of us and we're all not going to do you know no matter how motivated you are as a student <laughs> if you don't have because I think she also didn't build that mutual respect mm. in the classroom. She was constantly kind of putting down her students, being like, oh, you guys are going out, you know, over the weekend. So I bet you didn't do any work or something, even though you may have done the mm. work. Um, and so then to put us on the spot where we would have to volunteer 
to do that. It's a bit of a no brainer, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, well, it's funny you say that because I'm, I mean, we're going to get to the book. I actually don't want to jump right into the book because I feel like we're going to talk so much about the book, but um, I want to understand more the, impetus like why why focus on writing a book based on stories of these so-called gifted adult language learners who and i love how you describe them in the book and i'm gonna read a verbatim here against all odds right and these people achieve this so-called native like proficiency which we will also dissect later but what was the main impetus to actually write this book was there any sort of connection to your language learning experience, to your language teaching experience, or was it more like part of your PhD or something like that? Um, well, I think in terms of with my own language learning experience, a little bit is you kind of ask yourself the question when whenever you start something new is what's what's the goal, mm-hmm. right? What is what is the end point? Or if there isn't an end point, what is the moving goalpost? Where do you put it? Um, and with language, I think that's a really difficult thing to do because, you know, you don't have say, oh, I want to play, if you're a basketball player, I want to play in the NBA. What's the NBA of language learning? Um, (laughs) and so that is kind of what drew me to the project, but the idea actually came from Zoltan's class because he was teaching about the critical period hypothesis, which Mm. is this idea that there is a period, um, for every human during which we are naturally capable of learning languages by osmosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that certain cutoff age, uh, we wouldn't be able to do that and language learning becomes difficult. Um, and there's a lot of different variations of this hypothesis and mm-hmm. a lot of debate over what age it's at or whether it's a strict cutoff or a linear sort of thing. But so he was, and so he was teaching about this. And then he said, but some people are able to may be able to actually still learn a language as if they were or to the point where you wouldn't be able to tell that they weren't a native speaker um despite having been after that supposed critical period hypothesis so we huh. put it at after the age of 18 but usually critical periods usually 18? around like pu- yeah so we we set it at 18 but usually critical periods around like puberty um yeah i was going to say but it ranges 12, from right? like 8 to 13 yeah yeah huh interesting it's interesting so i think my question i mean i wasn't thinking about talking about the critical period um hypothesis or i think i remember um when i read about it a long time ago they call it the sensitive period right yeah where there's this um ideal as you said this ideal um time window of of brain development to acquire a language um but i think what are the i think what i think my question then becomes Maybe you can help us understand what are some of the variables that you guys, that you, um, Zoltan, and, and everyone else involved in this project, what were some of the variables that you found within the critical period? <laughs> if you can actually share some of those things with us. What do you mean by with? So we didn't actually talk to anyone within the critical period. Right. Oh, so, right. They were all so adults, the yes. That, yeah, so the people that we talked to were over the age of. Right. Um, we're past the critical period basically so mm. yeah i mean i know that um previous studies that kind of look at proving or disproving the critical period look at variables like 
age at which they start right. learning or in which they're immersed in the environment, um, the different kinds of domains that you would that you would use the language in, um, things like that. But yeah, we didn't we didn't look at at those things. So basically, the book then is trying to somewhat debunk the critical period hypothesis. Is that correct? Not at all. So um, we are completely just sidestepping the issue because okay. so there's been this huge body of research that has been either trying to prove or disprove the critical period right. hypothesis by putting a bunch of monolinguals and bilinguals or multilinguals in lab settings and have mm -hmm. them do various tasks and measuring them to the millisecond. And if they can find no differences, then that means there's no critical period. And if they can find right. differences, that means there is one. Um, but there exists within these participants, um, you have these people who they're recruited somehow, right? Um, yeah. And some of sometimes the criteria is that you have to be able to pass as a native speaker for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and so then the question for us is, okay, we don't actually care um, for our purposes, whether or not you can be indistinguishable by the millisecond from a native speaker. What we care about is that you passed in the first place at all, mm -hmm. um, because for most people, that's that's you know not really something that that is achievable, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to dissect this pass because I think that's a. I remember that being a very um, recurrent theme in the book and. As I was reading and going through all the chapters, I remember reading that a lot. I was like, oh, I really want to talk more about that. But before we just jump right into the book, you also make a very, very good distinction, which I think would be very useful for people who are listening and watching this, this podcast, a very useful distinction between polyglots and those people who master a language to a native-like or a near-native-like proficiency. Can you help us understand the difference between the two? Yes. So if we think about exception, so let's start with kind of the word exception, right? Because exceptionality or giftedness, we chose exceptionality specifically because it means that it's the exception to the rule. So most mm -hmm. people would not be able or would not achieve this for whatever reason. And so there's two different ways to be exceptional in language learning. The first is to become a polyglot. So polyglots maximize the number of languages that you speak. So you know, usually I think it's six or more. So you would speak six or more languages wow. um, to a decent level. <laughs> Where you want to put that cutoff is uh, debatable, depending on a lot of things. And you have a lot of YouTubers that out that are yes. out there being like, oh, yes, I'm a polyglot. And then they butcher three out of six languages. And everyone in the comments is like, that wasn't even a word in French or something. Exactly. Um, but then you but then you do have real polyglots as well that, that do exist. Um, and so then the other kind of exceptionality would be maximizing the depth of one language. So mm. where polyglots maximize breadth, um, native like uh. language learners would then maximize depth. So they are an expert in one language, um, usually one. Uh, sometimes there you can be in two or more, but I think the kind of effort and time that it would take to do one usually means that it's only one. And there's, yeah, so basically breadth over depth. That's the main difference between um, someone who mastered language to a neonative-like proficiency versus a polyglot. And it's interesting that you said that because I remember reading that in the book. And I find that a lot of polyglots don't actually speak 
all these languages. They might master maybe one with yeah. a, a certain level of depth, but the other ones are like they can, you know, they can say a few things. They can have very basic conversations, but they haven't really reached this um, this depth in the language as you as you suggested. So, um, I think my question then becomes, what is the how do you measure depth within a uh, person, one of those uh, gifted adults that we you mentioned in the book? How do you measure the depth in a language? Right. So that's a good question because how how do you measure proficiency, right? Mm -hmm. And what what does proficiency mean? Oh because, yes. you know, we have all these different tests and all these different frameworks to um, compare against. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the times I think here in, in Europe, you have the CEFR common European mm -hmm. framework. Yeah, the CEFR. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, but for us, what mattered was kind of this, this phenomenon of passing, right? Because, you know, someone could have a really, really intensely not intensely, um, someone could have like a very broad understanding and use mm -hmm. of a language. Um, so I think Zoltan always used to use himself as an example um, because his command of the language arguably is unquestionable, right? I mean, he's written God knows how many books um, in, you know, academic research articles yeah. and everything, you know, there's not, and he lives here, he lived here, um, had his family here and everything. So there isn't any situation in which he couldn't um, function without problem, right, in English. But at the same time, no one would ever take him as a native speaker um, for various reasons. And so then for us, it, we're not necessarily saying that being native-like is the highest level of proficiency because you could be native-like in different domains, um, mm, okay. right? So like some of our participants um, who were native-like in English may not have had the command of English that Zoltan has, for example, mm -hmm. right? Yes. But they have achieved this other thing, which is being native-like, which is not necessarily achievable for a lot of people. Um, right. Because it does have to do with, with things like pronunciation. Right. Um, as well as, um, you know, collocations or, you know, different sayings, turns of speech. Um, right. Even the way that you kind of just gestures and interact with people right i think well i mean there's so much to unpack there right there and i remember i think you you guys wrote about that in the book where i think zoltan considered himself a high functioning non-native speaker of english um is that is that a good term that we can use to describe someone as opposed because i feel like andrew is probably gonna chime in at some point I feel like the biggest problem that we have in our in our field now is these this the perhaps the commodification of English language teaching, but much more so this idea of trying to push or sell this non-native like or or native like proficiency. Because even the term sound like a native speaker, you may sound like one, but you're never gonna be one so maybe yeah. you can help us 
Well, the other question is, is when you say that you want to sound like a native speaker, yeah. what, which which native speaker, right? Do you exactly. want to sound like, um, I don't a know, Texan. a five-year-old native speaker? Yeah. Do you want to sound like a Texan? Do you want to sound like, I don't know, Boris Johnson? Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Do you want to sound like an academic? Do you want to sound like a rapper? You know what? Um, there's so many different ideas of what what native is, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, there is this huge, huge problem. I think also because language learners want an idea of okay, I've reached this level now, right? Um, and you know, when we teachers are always given these kinds of frameworks of okay, you have to get your students to this level or to that level, right? And we have tests for these and things, and so then when you have this idea of, you know, a lot of students come in and say, oh, I want to sound like a native speaker. Mm-hmm. And suddenly teachers have to say, okay, well, um, let's, that's, that's problematic for a lot of different reasons. Um, right. What, what do we do with that? Right. And so mm-hmm. I think one thing that was really important for us with this book was sort of starting out at the beginning saying, look, being a native, we're not saying that being a native speaker is the goal for everyone or being mm-hmm. like a native speaker, being native-like is the goal mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, and there are a broad variety of different goals for any language learner. You know, you may want to learn, you may want to work in that language. You may want to raise a family in that language. You may want to move the cut, move to the country that speaks that language, or you may just want to read books for fun. You know, mm-hmm. um, you could have any manner of different goals. And so Sounding like a native speaker is a goal, but it mm-hmm. is and should not be the only goal. And it definitely shouldn't be one that is institutionalized because yes. it's so arbitrary, right? Like, it's... what is the native speaker? Who, who, how do we define this? There's so many different gray areas um, mm-hmm. there that it's, it's, an, it's a very non-functional target um, for standardization. I feel like, and I don't know if if you're going to agree with me, um, I feel like, because you mentioned this in the book, that a lot of language learners, even though they have this very, I mean, myself included, this we all have this initial motivation when we're starting um, some sort of new journey. And in this case, to reach this proficiency, this native-like proficiency. I usually tell my students that, like, when you're going to start, when you go to the gym, is your goal to like, I want to have a sick, a very well-defined six-pack. How often do people actually achieve that? So I tell them that reaching a native, reaching native-like proficiency is, as you said, the NBA of language learning before, I would say that native-like proficiency is the sex, the six-pack of um, um, gym workout routines, you know? So I think, and yeah, I think you kind of talked about this, Katarina, but what would be like how can a learner i guess or a language learner or even a teacher help students um come up with more feasible goals for people who are actually starting their their learning um journey what what would that look like and and what did this look like for the people that you um the stories of the people that you've um had for this book right um I think so when we when we go to the gym, right, and we want that six pack, we also set kind of proximal goals for ourselves right. as well. We say, okay, well, this week I want to lift this much, right? And you know, in a month's time, I want to be able to lift that much. And at the end of that journey, you know, maybe there's that six pack. Um, 
And if you don't end up, if you, if your goals change along the way and you, you know, no longer want a six pack, but instead you want to deadlift two horses, you know, that's, that's wonderful. Um, and, and that's okay. So I think having one, having this idea that goals are flexible, but also I think setting up proximal goals, right? Because it's knowing that you're on your way to a goal that I think is the energizing thing. So a lot of, and I, I would like to say that a lot of our participants did not actually aim to be native like, um, and it happened kind of on the way. Um, and, huh. and this is, this is like kind of very clearly outlined in the second book, um, in stories because, um, everyone had like a very different trajectory towards there. And so some people did use very proximal goals and some people just kind of focused on what was important for them at the mm. time. Um, so for example, yeah. I didn't know um, that. I didn't know. I actually thought that they were all trying to achieve native-like proficiency, the six pack of language. So yeah. they weren't. Very interesting. No, not at all. So um, some of them, so for example, um, Teresa, I think, is the first one that comes to mind who um had just doesn't pay any attention to kind of accents or to um any kinds of sort of formal mo um models of proficiency um mm -hmm. but rather just kind of moved here and was like okay we'll just go with the flow and live my life here and um <laughs> see what happens and language just happened by i think the word she uses by osmosis um right and so you know, for some people, it does come naturally, um, whereas for other people, you know, they really had to work at it. So there's um, Marianne, for example, who mm -hmm. um, she worked in a hospital in the UK um, and was learning English. She's originally Dutch and um, she wanted to do everything uh, in her power to kind of fit in with her community and make sure that her life here worked out smoothly. And so then her profession actually ended up giving her a different um different kind of barriers to overcome not barriers um i guess mm. hurdles to overcome um yeah. that she kind of had to rise to the occasion to meet um and so those acted as proximal goals for her in her ultimate kind of goal of doing the best she could for her language proficiency mm. very interesting i honestly didn't know that andrew goal sorry i really like that example a lot and when you said being native, like in different domains that just, I spent like 10 minutes just throwing that around in my brain. And it's really, really interesting because that NBA example or the six pack, that's not beer. Cause that would be my case. I would, I would definitely get a six pack, but it would necessarily be physical. Um, <laughs> players or kids, if you ask them who want to be basketball players, you're right. They would probably, Oh, I want to play in the NBA. Right. But mm -hmm. that's not a finite as you said, it's not, you know, you have people, you have Michael Jordan and you have LeBron James who are historically, you know, if you could mold in a lab, a basketball player, those are people, those are the two, the gold standards and they are good or they are exceptional at, to use your word <laughs> at everything, at shooting, at passing, at dribbling, at defense, at rebounding, everything that you would want. But then there are, 99.9% of NBA players who are not them who are also in the NBA and maybe mm -hmm. they excel at shooting and they're terrible at defense or maybe they excel at defense and they're terrible at everything else or maybe they never get to play they're Rudy right have you seen, <laughs> right good point yeah but if you ask them what they do for a living they say I'm in the NBA 
So that in order to get there, they did have to, you know, be a good player compared to normal people. So is your reflective question of what is the NBA of language learning? Is it, can you excel at rebounding and nothing else? So can you excel at conversation skills and nothing else and be in that native like domain for that one specific thing? Can you be, can you excel at writing work emails? Cause that's the only thing you care about and not excel at other things. Or is it a bit more complicated than that? I think it would be more complicated than excelling at work emails, for example, because okay. that is giving you, you know, in order to do that, you have to have a good understanding of, you know, a lot of politeness, also very mm. like locational politeness, because mm-hmm. work emails in the UK are very different than in the US, <laughs> as I have found out. Um, <laughs> so and then, you know, writing skills and, you know, register and all things like that. So but on the other hand, I think there are a lot of different skills where you can you can be really good at um, and kind of let other ones fall behind. So I think one that was more common for our participants was that most of them were much better at speaking because I think our um, criteria on criteria was that you had to be able to pass in a in a conversation. So in in a speaking task um, okay. that not that we that one, but in speaking. Um, so a lot of them actually did cite not necessarily feeling as comfortable in their writing skills. Mm. Um, and I think Uwe, for example, actually talks about this a lot, where he um, he actually achieved um, spoken native likeness quite early on, and he didn't necessarily count this as an achievement because it was something that just happened um, alongside his interest in the sounds of English. But then later in his career he actually had to work very hard at his writing proficiency his academic writing and he counts that as that Mm. as his achievement because that was Uh, something that he actively tries to mold in a certain way okay that's oh wow and with native like proficiency the like in that sentence means that the person is not right so when we talk about models and sounding like, when, when sounding like means speaking. When I speak, I sound like, but it could be should be, you know, reading right or, like. or write, write like or whatever. We interviewed, I want to say it was last year, but it might have been two years ago. Leo, we talked to Dr. Masatoshi Sato. Oh, yes. And you asked Kedrin, the, the million dollar question, like, well, which native speaker do you want to sound like rhetorically, obviously, because there isn't one and doesn't exist. But he argued for students finding a model to sound like, to write like, to read like, etc. Who shares their L1, who mm-hmm. is the native like, or is has an exceptional toolbox, for lack of a better term, that they mm-hmm. aspire to have. So they want to get to the NBA, but what kind of player do they want to be? Do they want to be the star, or do they want to be a role player? Or do they want to be a bench player, or mm-hmm. sixth man of the year, or or whatever? Is that something that we can add here? So don't find a native model, but find an actual person who shares your language, who you then can learn from, model, watch their talks, listen to them, read their articles, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that can be really productive, right? Because you then, not only do you have a model for success, but you also have someone to 
potentially copy in certain mm-hmm. ways. Um, and I think, um, I think, for example, so Sarah, one of our participants, um, talks about role models a lot because she said specifically that she did actually pick um, role models who are other language learners themselves. Um, because she I I think there's like a specific quotation from her where she says that she wanted to be like her classmate um, who was learning Hungarian because she not she didn't want to be like her teacher because her teacher was too far away and was Mm -hmm. uh, I think Mm -hmm. a native Hungarian speaker Um, but she wanted to be like her classmate because she could she could envision that better Um, and you know sometimes visions can be really energizing for motivation yeah, we were going to ask you about the the whole um, L2 self, because this is something that Zoltan also had, had written extensively about. Like, how many of these exceptional language learners um, actually had a very clear, vivid um, vision of themselves in the, in the second language? How many of them were actually going through that process of visualizing themselves in, in that language? Off the top of my head, I couldn't give you the number. Um, so it wasn't everyone. Um, okay. And so, but I think one who that comes to mind is Peng, um, who talks about how vision is so was so powerful for him. Um, and mm-hmm. it really reigned over all of his kind of energies um, in learning English and how he's finding that now he's learning, I think, French. Um, and he's found that he doesn't want to have that vision because in a way the vision was too powerful. It like really reigned over his entire life for a very long time. And so now he's like, well, I have like smaller goals for French. He just wants to read literature. And so he's like, yeah, that's so his approach is different, um, which is interesting. Um, And then some people, uh, I think Amelia said that, you know, her, she's, um, she's read about kind of the vision and the L2 mm-hmm. MSS and everything. And it's just not how her motivation worked. Um, mm. You know, she just, uh, I think she just wanted to do what was there and be, and be better and continue to improve. So I think for some people, it can be really, really helpful and it can be really, um, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And for some people it's not. And I think that's okay. Um, I think you just have to find kind of what 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 helps your motivation. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, and welcome to another interview with uh, Teacher Accelerator member and Jessica Diaz. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. When you have only one one-on-one lessons, one-to-one, there's a limit. You're going to have a limit of students. And even if you have like 20 students, that's too much. You're going to be overworked and overwhelmed. That's not something that I wanted. I'm not leaving school to be overworked with something that's going to leave me trapped again. That's, that's the thing of having your online course, because you can be at the beach selling your course this being overworked took took a toll on my mental health so I was like I want to have time to go to the gym to spend time with my family with my friends and I wasn't able to do that I wanted to help more students and I also wanted to have more time for myself and also to develop myself as a professional because I wanted to read more I wanted to take other courses there's so much things uh, in the tap course 
Hey everyone, this is Andrew from Learn Your English. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teacher Talking Time. We work hard to produce a show that's theoretical, practical, and hopefully interesting. But, you know, not everything fits into a podcast format. And we've been working hard behind the scenes on something that we're excited about. And we hope you are too. And we're happy to share it with you right now. But first, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, are you a teacher with your own business? Number two, are you looking to grow that business? And number three, are you interested in doing that quickly and overcoming common pitfalls? If so, we have a new free 120-hour training that might be for you. You know, we've worked with hundreds of teachers over the years and have seen them stumble on common obstacles when it comes to business. These obstacles cause delays and stagnate growth to what would otherwise be a successful operation. And now we're happy to say that we've developed an email course to help you overcome these challenges so you can see growth in your business right away. This is a step-by-step -step email training to help you overcome the five obstacles that we've seen prevent most teachers from building their business successfully, whether you teach one-to-one -one or groups or don't have your own business yet. In this course, we look at things like business mindset, dogma ELT, and materials light teaching attracting the right kind of client, crafting your offer, and an essential business model every teacher should use. With this, we've helped hundreds of teachers to overcome these, and now you can do it as well. To begin, just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles. Once enrolled, you'll get an email from us every day for five days with strategies, tasks, and actionables to use in your business immediately. Plus, at the end, there's a little treat from the three of us. So once again, head over to learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles and get started with this free 120-hour course and see growth in your business in just five days. The link to that is also in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, my name is Maurice and I'm from Ivory Coast. You're listening to the Teacher Talking Time to Learn Your English podcast. Coucou tout le monde, je m'appelle Maris et je viens de Côte d'Ivoire. Vous écoutez The Teacher Talking Time, The Learn Your English Podcast. Amusez-vous bien? Well, let's dive into the book now because we've been talking, I mean, we've been talking about the book the whole time. But I wanted, oh, first of all, the title of the book, um, Stories from Exceptional Language Learners Who Have Achieved Native-Like Proficiency. I guess the title says it all. Um, but one thing I'm really interested in is um, your writing process. I'm very interested in like how people are able to compartmentalize thoughts, ideas. So I would love to speak or, he or to hear you speak more about your writing process. What does that look like for you? Do you what did your writing sessions look like? Did you start it with... Did you start with an empty page and then you were like <laughs> staring at that empty page for like hours like I do sometimes? Um, so what was it? What was it like for you? For me personally, I would just first disclaimer, writing is a really painful, painful thing. <laughs> I sit there from the morning until the evening doing absolute like staring at my computer, doing absolutely nothing, getting nothing done and just feeling terrible about myself the entire time. <laughs> and then around like 11 p.m. My brain is like, okay, well, I said I wasn't going to go to bed until I get this done. And then it all just comes out in like three hours, which is so frustrating. Uh, but but it is what it is. Um, 
but no so we didn't really start with with a blank page here the nice mm. thing i think about the whole qualitative research process is that you know we had the interviews and then the way that we kind of we had condensed the interviews and the way that we analyzed them and things like that meant that in a way for the book we actually had an outline from our analysis anyway mm-hmm. um and so you know going back to that in vivo file and word was was a very fluid thing but we did we did mm-hmm. sit down it was me Zoltan and Capucine and we sat down um and we said okay and bringing to the meeting we decided okay everyone bring to the meeting a table of contents and kind of what you think should go in each of those sections and then we sat there kind of negotiating like okay well this is similar this is not and you know throwing bits out or adding bits here um to make kind of a coherent um story and then yeah when it came to actually writing it was nice because you actually had you know all of these different quotations and sort of the topics that emerged that you wanted to cover um and the quotations kind of led you there um and as for the stories that was also that was a lot easier actually because you know you you have you have the content there you just have to put it in order of of a what we call a story in the West, I guess, in like chronological order. Right. Um, and I think there are 30 stories in the book. Is that correct? Yeah. 30 learners for the book. What was the selection process? What was that like? How did you guys decide, you know what, we're going to have this person, but we're not going to have these people? Like, tell us more about that. Right. So we used what we call the duck test. Um, so oh, yeah, that's the first, is, the beginning of the, the book. Yes, I remember yeah. that. <laughs> so if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. Um, so basically, they <laughs> had, yeah, easy. <laughs> um, so the idea is, is that, well, I mean, for our purposes, it, it was a duck, right? Because so basically, um, the people that we took were people who could recount um, passing as a native speaker in their target language. Um, consistently um mm-hmm. for a, at least five minutes let's say mm-hmm. right um and not just one time so it can't be oh you were at your cousin's wedding and uh his mom said oh wow like where are you from in greece and actually you were from hungary mm-hmm. you know it, it has to be consistently by many different people right and so if there are any kind of doubts with that then we said okay no like if you can only really recount like two or three times maybe you're not what we're looking for even though you're that's great for you you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and then our other criteria was that they could not have spent an extended period of time immersed in the target language before mm. the age of 18 so that's taking out our critical period hypothesis right. and they can't have had any heritage links oh so also related to the, the critical period hypothesis so just making sure that they're not having any kind of early exposure in those traditional ways leo do you are you a duck i think so i think so i think so i think i'm a duck yeah (laughs) but not i think the critical period got a little bit into me because i went to i started when i was maybe nine ten I started at age six or seven with like listening to the bbc but i didn't understand much of what was said but uh, I I found ways to stay in touch with the language 
but I would say that most of my learning was um, incidental, wasn't really intentional. It was mostly consuming. So maybe I could have been in the book. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe nice. next time. Maybe stories <laughs> of exceptional language teachers. Part, part, part maybe we do a part two. Yes, yes. Um, it is one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, Katarina, is that I think you've mentioned this somewhere in the book or maybe in this conversation that we've been having, that even these successful language learners, they also dealt with these so-called shortcomings in their in their second language. What is I think the question is, can you help us understand? I mean, if you know the answer to this, what does it mean to to deal with these shortcomings in their second language? Um and I, th I think you've mentioned something about linguistic limitations. Um, I think a word that I remember reading very clearly now was the word markedness. And perhaps you could shed a light on that. Right. So I think linguistic limitations and markedness aren't necessarily the same thing. Right. Um, markedness can be a limitation if for oh. some reason you were mm. trying to blend in um, seamlessly with right. a group of people. Yeah. Um so, for example, I'm very marked in Nottingham because I have a very American accent. Exactly. So I was going to say that. Like... Go, yeah. And so everywhere I go, people ask, oh, where are you from? Where are you from? Um, and so. And are you offended by that? Well, it's interesting because so growing up in Texas, kind of how I started, people always used to ask, where are you from? Where are you from? And that was always because of my appearance or sometimes because of my name, but mostly it was because of my appearance. Right. Um, and sometimes there's a bit of both because I have a very white name and I don't look white. Um, <laughs> and so then moving here and people asking, where are you from? And they meant it the language wise. Yeah. Was just so because, you know, then you respond, oh, yeah, my mom's Indian, my dad's Greek. And they're like, no, but like, where's your accent from? Um, which uh -huh. I just find. I, I feel like I should just give up, you know, it's it's fine. There's nowhere that I can live where people <laughs> will just accept me as someone who exists. Right. Um, and so I very much kind of relate with that idea of mm -hmm. wanting to not be marked. Um, then on the other hand, so linguistic limitations would be, you know, maybe not necessarily feeling like you can express yourself perfectly authentically all the time. Mm. Um you know, or, you know, that work email that you were trying mm. to, to write, which, you know, you might have trouble in your first language as well, but maybe it adds an extra layer of difficulty because it's also your your second or third or fourth language. Um, yeah. So in, mm. in passing this or in the word, you know, passing the, the test, the duck test, I yeah. guess, or so to speak, you know, markedness is either sounds like it's you have it or you don't, you know, it's it's not something that you can it's in your control. <laughs> um proficiency though is so is this something that and it sounds like it's passing the test is in the hands of the receiver right mm. we talk a lot about with pronunciation teaching about it's a two-way street sure we can work on our own pronunciation but it's also on the person to whom i'm speaking to meet me halfway or meet the learner or the student or whoever halfway is am i understanding correctly that the interaction with the native like person determines the passing of of the test yes so there's i think so sorry <laughs> this is a, a bit confusing question um sorry 
how I talk to somebody, I ask a question and their response to my question would indicate whether or not I, I pass the test. Yeah, so we basically the I think we, these kinds of notions of, of nativeness in general and native likeness. Um, and I think a lot of people do write about this also have a lot of intersections with, for example, race, right? Mm -hmm. um, because we have this idea that, you know, certain languages align with certain races and things. And so, you know, your chances of passing um, for a language for which you don't look the part are a lot lower. And we do have um, some participants who talk about this as well. Um, so, for example, I think Joy, um, used, I think she grew up in Brazil. So she's Canadian um, and she's blonde with blue eyes um, and she grew up in Brazil and she talks about how when she was a child, even though that, and this is during her critical period hypothesis, so not her native like language, but mm -hmm. um, as a child, she was learning um, Portuguese and she sounded like a Portuguese person, but people would, there would be like a disconnect when she spoke with people because she didn't look the part. Um, yes. But then later as an adult, she moved to Iceland um, and learned Icelandic and because she looked the part she found it was a lot she she got a lot more leeway wow there, right yes I identify that's... with that I I mean I speak Spanish and I'm the last person who looks like like I had that ex <laughs> Guatemala. experience all the time where I would sit down I'm you know wherever I used to live in Costa Rica so you'd go to a restaurant or a bar or something and you just start talking and the person's face is like what I understand you. I had this conversation a hundred times. They would be like, very politely, I understand you perfectly, but what's coming out of your mouth doesn't, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't match with the profile of person that I'm looking at. And it's, it's a very interesting concept for sure. I am reminded of that episode with Dr. Jane Seta, Andrew, where she basically talks about a very similar story, Katarina. I don't know if you, if you know who Jane Seta is. She is a prof. Where is she, Andrew? I can't remember. I have to pull She's up in the information. She's in England as well. I She's in the UK, but I think University of Reading. I don't remember. Yes, anyway, that's right. That's is right. it Reading? I don't yes. know. I have to pull out the information here. But she talked a lot about in in our episode with her when we talked about um, pronunciation. She said that her father really tried to help, like really try to kind of push her to change her accent because I think she came from a working class. Um, family in the UK and her father had to change his accent and she had to change her accent in order to be able to fit in because otherwise she would have never been able or he would have never been able to work at a bank I don't remember exactly what it was but I think it's a lot and again she's still a native speaker who still has to pass right as yeah. this is amazing okay. I think now that now that you mentioned this, I definitely listened to this podcast. Um, so yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, that and that's interesting, yeah. right? Because we have this idea of when when a language learner wants to sound native, like it's because they want to. They have this idea in their head of they want to just exist in spaces where people have grown up speaking that language without being marked, right? Mm -hmm. But well. We don't take into account is that we also have these experiences in our first language as well mm -hmm. um but i also think you know earlier andrew you said that marketedness may not necessarily be something that we can change but proficiency is um i will kind of throw that back at you and is marketedness something that we can't change right um 
I think to an extent, um, maybe, right? But, and I think a, a lot of the kinds of things that we see with pronunciation where we say, okay, after a certain age, people are just bad at learning pronunciation. But if we look at the history of pronunciation teaching, is it maybe also because we don't really teach pronunciation very much? Yes. Right. We're not giving people the opportunity to change. And you see this with, for example, with actors who are, they have voice coaches to. We talked about that in the accent. episode as well. Yes. And some yes. people do really, really well with it. Some people do terribly, like Emma Watson with an American accent. <laughs> really bad. So terrible. Um, bless her. She tried. She really did. Um, really, you know, great actor, actress. But yeah, the American accent was very strange. But other people do really, really well. Um, and so is the reason that we think that we can't change because we think so. Mm. Uh, because we just don't have the training. Yeah. And that yeah. makes that begs. This is why our shows are nine hours long because we have lots of. This begs a question, and this begs a question. Did any of the participants in your book or throughout your any of your research, like, do you do you do the? I'll keep calling it the test because I don't know another way to say it. But do you do the test on the phone, or in a way where the person's physical appearance is hidden? And in that case, if it's just auditory, do the results change? So we didn't do the test. Okay. So this is they. This is them doing, them having the experience throughout their lives. And some of them were no longer native, like by the time we spoke with them, because of attrition and various things. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, um, Christopher, I think, had a, an experience. Oh no, Carrie. Sorry, um, Carrie had an experience where she was speaking with someone on the phone, and um, and and. Uh, she was speaking Italian with them. She's a, a L1 English speaker. Um, and she was speaking Italian with this woman. And then she came in the next day and was like, oh, hello, I was speaking with Carrie. Where's Carrie? And Carrie's like, oh, yes, I'm Carrie. And uh, the woman genuinely goes, you can't be Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> the Carrie that I was speaking to was Italian woman. That's too funny. The, the audacity. Oh, um, oh so, how dare you? Yeah, so so it does it does happen where um, it is over the phone. Obviously, Carrie had different other um, examples of when she passed that weren't just only over the phone, um, but it does happen. Um, there was another example with uh, Christopher who was at a hotel uh, in Japan. So Christopher is Canadian L1 English speaker, and he learned Japanese. And um, he's at a hotel, and the the owner manager of the hotel was this really elderly old woman um, who didn't have her glasses on. And so they had like a whole conversations and everything. And then the next morning, um, the woman had put her glasses on <laughs> and she goes to like the, the other people working at the hotel, like, oh, my God, like there's this foreigner here. <laughs> Where did he come from? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it does happen. Um, but yeah, it, it, it shows us also that while there are many things that we can change in terms of marketness and in terms of proficiency and pronunciation and all these things, yes, you're right. It is also in mm. in the ears of our be- and the eyes of our be- uh, beholders. So, mm-hmm. you know, just to cut ourselves a little bit of slack in terms of, For okay, sure. well, no one's going to ever take me as a native speaker of Japanese, yeah. except over the phone, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I mean, maybe not. I mean, the first impression is just, you know, but 
I'm, I'm assuming they have the same story as me. Like after you get past the first 10 seconds of like, oh my God, it's like, and then they're just talking to somebody and, and it's fine. Yeah. And, yeah. and then they, I mean, I, after that, I never had a problem with, oh, you speak Spanish really well. Obviously you're not perfect and I'm not, trust me. But yeah. we had conversations about, and we just were just talking as two people. The first 10 seconds were like, wow, this is like not what I expected or I haven't met too many people like this. But after that, it's like, okay, well then let's go. Let's have a conversation. Let's do, let's do the thing that we're here to do. Hmm. I'm I'm curious because you guys were talking about all of this, but I'm very curious as to, and I think you mentioned this in, I think in one chapter, in the book where you talk about phonological abilities as being a very important component of you know um, sounding or or having this capacity to sound native like, and I think you describe that as these learners having what. I think you describe as a good ear for for languages. Um, how many of these language exceptional language learners actually had a good ear for languages, and how many of them were actually able to reach this, perhaps, um, the pinnacle, the NBA, as we as we've been using it here in this conversation? Were they actually capable of, or did they develop this? good ear for languages or was that something that they just didn't really um, achieve well i think it's interesting because when we talk about native likeness we think about what kinds of different competencies we need to yeah. have in order to pass right um and while i don't want to only ever focus on pronunciation because there's so many other different competencies that are mm -hmm. so vital for yes. this interaction to to work pronunciation does seem to be that limiting factor um, mm -hmm. one of the biggest limiting factors. And so I would say um, all of our participants did have to have at least, you know, at least NBA level, maybe not Michael Jordan level, but at least NBA mm -hmm. level to to even pass for the first point. Because you can you can have someone who is speaking perfectly coherently using lots of formulaic language, um, mm -hmm. you know, no grammatical divergences nothing right um but their if their pronunciation is even slightly off on the t's or the r's right they'll be caught up they'll be caught up yeah. right someone someone will notice <laughs> i, I, I use gotcha. quotes here, I like, you. Caught yeah. Up. yeah like yeah, who, yeah. who's gonna do that but but people do right when yeah sometimes when when you're talking with someone and, and they're listening and you can see their face go a little bit funny yes um yes. and then they're like finally when when you when you do make that t or that r they're like so where are you from because you sound a little bit, yeah. a little bit off, but they can't place you. Um, so pronunciation is one of those those things where you you do have to be kind of ironclad there for for that passing right. instance to ever happen. So it does have some sort of um, perhaps special status or status in in when it comes to you know um, sounding native like perhaps, right? And you mentioned also uh, musical ability. What's I would love to hear you talk more about that because I feel like a lot of my experience with learning a language was connected to. So that chapter when I was reading um, the book and you were talking about how closely, I think music, musical ability and language learning skills, how they are so connected. I feel like this is something that um, really resonated with me when I was reading because big a big big part of my language learning experience was through music so perhaps you could you could talk more about that so i think this is a, an area where we need a lot more future research because right. first of all we question what is a good ear right what what 
kinds of um, both kind of um, passive like listening ability and also production ability does um, counts towards language learning. And then also, you know, the question of musical ability and aptitude is also as complicated as the question of of language learning aptitude. So what kinds of abilities mm -hmm. are in there and where where do these cross over? Um, and there are several kind of there's there's a, a quite a bit of research already about this, um, all mm. with kind of mixed responses over over what what parts of musical aptitude are important and where these right. are where these are interlinked. Um, but I think what was interesting for us was just how many people did have musical background or musical mm. training or simply like you, you know, a lot of their learning experience was related to music. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of hopefully what, what comes out of that. And if, if we do get more, more research or maybe, maybe I'll do it. Perhaps stories from ex exceptional, um, musicians who have learned a language, <laughs> um, to a, to a near native like proficiency. And, um, I would love to hear you talk more about, I guess we don't have time to, because we we want people to read the book. And to those of you who are listening, who are watching this, we're going to have in the show notes, you will have a chance to get, um, I think, a discount for both books. Right, Andrew? We're going to leave the the discount codes there so people yep, can actually for sure, for sure. Um, purchase. I, I didn't read the whole thing. I read, I was, I was talking to Katarina earlier. I only read like the first six, seven chapters. And she did tell me that their favorite chapter is not one of those first seven. So I'm going to have to go back and continue my reading. But um, hopefully the first six chapters are still good, though. <laughs> they, were, they were enjoyable. They were very enjoyable. I'm going to tr I'm trying to summarize all the information from the next from the first six chapters into a question. But I think <laughs> the question I have is, <laughs> what do these exceptional language learners have in common when it comes to language learning? If you could maybe give us a few pointers here, like what were some of the things that you've, like we talked about musical ability, right? This, this, um, this, um, they have this background in music, but what are, are this other things that they shared um, after you went through? I mean, there are 30 of them. There's got to be some stuff that they have in common here. Yeah, they were all human. Um, okay, that's <laughs> a good start. At least two they were languages. not AI, yes. <laughs> no, actually, um, it's it's interesting because that was a question that we kind of asked ourselves as well, because of, of course there has to be something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in our conclusion, one of the first takeaways, um, the biggest kind of overarching lessons is that there was no silver bullet for mm. every single thing that we thought, oh, sure, surely, surely this must be the thing that they all had. For every single one, there were at least, there was at least one exception, but usually at least two or three. Um, and so, you know, I think putting together the table of contents for the first book uh, for lessons was really difficult because, or was really easy because you have all these, these themes that emerged, right? Mm -hmm. But then for every single one of those chapters, there was a, um, there was an exception, right? Which, which we cover. And so there is, yeah, there, there, there is basically, you know, I think there are a lot of different, I think the way that we kind of put it is that there's a highway for language learning. Right. Mm -hmm. And every one of these participants got onto that highway. 
Um, but there are different routes onto the highway that you can take. Nice. And they shared the road at different stretches. And maybe those stretches magically were at different parts of the journey for each of them. Um, and so it isn't necessarily that everyone has to be perfect in every single one of these, these factors, but rather that you need the this optimal combination of them that puts you onto that highway. Would you say there was any, would you describe them all as motivated? Good question, Andrew. Because the both yeah. asked the same thing. I'm yeah. trying to think of if there was someone who I would count as unmotivated. They're all, they're motivated, but in different ways. Mm. So, for example, we had, I mean, I would say the vast majority were highly motivated. Um, they really liked language learning. They developed this very unique close bond with their language. Mm. And, you know, they, that was really important for them. And perhaps reigned over all of their energies for long periods of their lives. Um, but then there were participants like Rianne, who she was very motivated, but she actually just didn't really care about language. You know, she one of the things that she says was, you know, in school, she was terrible at language learning. Um, and it was like one of her worst marks. Right. And then the reason that she ended up learning, um, I think it was German, was because she needed to for her job. You know, she had moved to, I think it was Germany, maybe Austria, but I think Germany. And um, they said, okay, right, well, you're teaching classes in German next year, so get on it. Um, and she had like decent proficiency at that point, but was like, okay, I really have to, really have to do this. So she was motivated, but maybe not in the ways we would like right. yeah. our students to be motivated. <laughs> Motivation manifests itself in different ways, right? It's different. It's like the roots and different roads, and but kind of going to the same place. Not to extend the NBA analogy, mm. but I'm going to because I think it's interesting. I just Googled it because I knew Kobe Bryant was famous for how many uh, practice shots he did every day. Mm -hmm. uh, care to take a guess? On every, in the off season, every day, how many sh practice shots he took? Let's see, a More. thousand at least. More than that, oh two thousand. In the off season, he'd spend every year wow. in the off season two thousand practice shots every single day. So I guess that's we put him on that Mount Rushmore, I suppose. Adam with Jordan and LeBron because it's Kobe, but that's how he manifested mm -hmm. his motivation, or one of the ways, I guess, right? But others maybe don't need to take two thousand shots a day to be to be good. But I guess. With, I don't have a question here. I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head. But with motivation, <laughs> there's, I think we like to distinguish having a goal with being motivated mm -hmm. to achieve it, right? The goal would be to get in the NBA, let's say. And, and being motivated, in Kobe's case, is I'm going to practice 2,000 shots every day to make sure that I give myself the best shot to do it. So with, and I know lots of teachers who are listening in our audience is full of teachers of who have students who may fit this description of just have no access to the language, are motivated to move forward and just kind of lack the how to take those 2,000 shots or how to, how to get on the right road. So I think this is really, this book is really, really good and motivational for those teachers and for their students that you don't have to come from a background where, let's call it privileged, you know, where you were exposed to language that you were able to live abroad, you were able to travel those things are great but if that's not you it's okay you can still do it 
Yeah, definitely. And I think Uwe there is the perfect example because he grew up in back then East Germany. Um, so he had very little exposure to English. Um, there was a rate he could connect to like the British Foreign Broadcasting Service. And simply by listening to that excessively, um, mm -hmm. you know, passionately, he somehow managed to get that um, native-like proficiency, spoken proficiency mm -hmm. at that point. Um, but then I think another kind of takeaway I would like teachers listening to get is um, something from Hannah's story. So Hannah is Finnish, and she learned uh, native-like LT English. And she actually counts herself as a very bad language learner. Um, specifically, <laughs> I think, a bad student. Um, to the point where in one of her courses, her um, teacher told her that she was probably one of the worst students that she had had um, because she just didn't apply herself. Um, and yet she was actually like a very motivated person to learn English because English was important for her because it meant that she could talk to um, her friends that who also mm -hmm. spoke English or that she could watch the shows that she wanted to watch or read the books that she wanted to read. But when she rolled up to class, you know, maybe she wouldn't do those assignments because they weren't necessarily. They were, I can they totally relate to her. her. I can totally relate yep. to Hannah. That's exactly <laughs> what I was like. You were saying that. I was like, oh, my God, this is me. I am Hannah. I had this because you were describing in the book the unique bond with the language. I just loved playing music. I loved having conversations with people. But my grades in English class or my English classes, I, it was, I, was, I was awful. And my mom kept saying, like, you speak the language. How can you not get, like, A's in English? I'm like, I don't know. I just just don't apply myself in class. My teacher said I suck. I'm terrible. At <laughs> but at the same time, I had this, this, I had this passion. I fell in love with English. I loved reading. I remember my first book in English. I remember reading Mary Shelley as a kid. And it's interesting because I find that and I think you mentioned that that one of the most important, I think, um, perhaps features amongst all the participants, as you said, is they all found a way to form this bond with their chosen language. And this bond can can vary, right, in many different ways. And I remember it could be contact with a community. It could be culture. I was deeply attracted to to English culture, to North American culture. I grew up watching Seinfeld. I grew up watching, you know, all these American shows that I, and this is why it was really hard for me to fit into my L1 community because I just didn't see myself in, in that specific group of people. So a lot of my, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but I wanted to ask you this question. Identity. We didn't talk about identity. And I think this is, maybe this is chapter 11, right? Where we talk about um, confidence, comfort ownership maybe we can we can wrap things up by talking about chapter 11 apparently yeah chapter 11 and 12 so confidence comfort and ownership and then identity comes after mm -hmm. that so this kind of idea of native likeness you know why what is kind of the benefit of being native like um or what maybe what benefits maybe come along with it um and so we kind of found that this arrange itself around three sort of topics. And so we called them confidence, comfort, and ownership. 
Um, and so one is confidence in terms of which is, you know, as what's written on the book, right, it, on, on the page, it's, it's the idea that you can have the confidence to go about your everyday life or in whatever situation and just go through it without having to worry, oh, am I going to be able to to do this well, right? Right. Um, but then there's also the sense of comfort that came to a lot of mm -hmm. our participants. So this idea, I think Uwe put it really beautifully, um, where he said, I wish I'd written this down so I could say it, but um, where he said something along the lines of his English ability was something that propped him up in high stress situations. Mm. Um, so he would be giving a lecture to say 100 people. Um, and rather than just being, okay, I'm confident that I, that I can give this lecture to 100 people, he instead said something along the lines of, actually, the English was something that he felt he could rely on, something that also allowed him to kind of take a step back and sort of use that English ability to, mm. to create space. Um, where he could, I guess, communicate his authentic mm -hmm. voice. Um, and then the last wow. one of those is ownership, which is this idea that the language is yours to command, and but also to play with. Um, mm -hmm. And so this comes through most easily with things like humor and jokes, mm -hmm. because sometimes we make plays on words. And um, if someone knows that you are an L2 speaker, they'll correct you without realizing that no you were actually just making a joke um yes, yes. which is so frustrating <laughs> it is frustrating it really is trust me <laughs> yeah um so that, that um, that's like on a, like a very basic level but then there's also this kind of taking that unique bond that you create to a whole nother level where the language is kind of part of you but also mm -hmm. you are part of it um and i think Danny talks about this in her chapter really, really nicely about how coming to native likeness in German for her was also kind of coming to learn what kind of like what German meant to her um, and have access to the the breadth of of German uh, literal literature culture and things like that. So those were the kind of the, the three things that that we surprised us, I guess, a little bit um, with with native likeness, because, you know, we spent the rest of the book talking about, well, how did they get there? But what does there mean? What 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 happens once you're there? Um, and these three things apparently came out of it. Um, yeah. Wow. Yes. Oof. There's so much there. Um, stories from exceptional language learners who have achieved native like proficiency. This book co-authored by I need I don't know I don't know how to pronounce your last name. So if I butcher it, please correct me. Katarina Mensolopoulos. Perfect. Good. And you also um, I mean you're a co-author. I mean, we have to talk about it. Zoltan Dornier. I I have to admit, and I was talking to Katarina earlier in, in the show before we actually started recording. I had Zoltan on my list of guests for the podcast. And it came to me as a shock when I heard of his um, passing. But I just wanted to kind of like make this episode some sort of a tribute or pay honor to his um, contributions to second language education in general, to the field of psycholinguistics. Because as we all know, I mean, he was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, I've never seen anyone publish so much 
And I always often wondered, how does he find the time to teach and to write and to present? Like, how? So I think the question I have for you, um, Katarina, is what was it like to write and to work with Zoltan since you are also at the University of Nottingham, where he has been for a while now or was for a while? Yeah, I think you put it very well <laughs> with um, a force to be reckoned with. No, he's the thing with Zoltan is that he was, I mean, he spent most of his career talking about motivation, right? Mm -hmm. But the man himself was actually just a very motivational person. Exactly. Um, I would go into a meeting thinking, we're not going to make any of our deadlines. This isn't we're we're so behind. You know, it was I think it was the summer and the manuscript was due in October or something, something like that. And um it was early summer and I thought we're supposed to write two books and you know we have we have like sixty thousand words of the second book of stories, but we don't have basically anything of lessons. I've never written a book before. I don't know how long this takes, but it seems to me like it should take longer than a few months. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I go into this meeting and he goes, oh yeah, so you know, we can just write a chapter in a couple of days and then we can move on to the next one. And I was like, I'm sorry, did he just say to write a chapter in two days? Because that's not... That's not, but but somehow you, he persuades you. He's like, no, this is going to be great. We've got it all here and, you know, we're doing fine and this is wonderful. And then you do it and you're like, oh, okay, that's, uh, I guess we did do it uh, somehow, um, which <laughs> I would recommend anyone out there who's thinking of writing a book, please do give yourselves longer to write things. <laughs> but also if you can find a really, really, motivational and positive co-author and I think the thing with this project that I think was I was really lucky about was that he it was almost like a pet project for him mm. um because it, it 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 rose sort of out of the pandemic we were all coming we were all in this very strange like liminal space of um what kind of happens when you're at home for all this time and I think for someone like Zoltan who it was so productive I think he was probably sitting there like, what's okay, great. I have all this time to write, but what'll, let's do something fun. Um, and so he just brought so much of this energy to, to the project because he was so excited about it. Um, and I mean, even in some of his last emails to me, he said that this project was like one of the most exciting ones that he had worked on um, and that he was just really happy to, to bring it to fruition. Um, because I think at the end of the day, you know, I think the the idea of like native life standards has been used negatively for a lot of people um, in a lot of different situations. Um, but I think the thing that he wanted to bring back to the table was that, okay, yeah, we shouldn't expect everyone to climb Mount Everest, right? Like, it's just mm -hmm. unsustainable. And why would you want to? But also, there's something really valuable and interesting about people who have climbs Mount Everest, about NBA players, about, you know, Michael Jordan, that is fascinating and motivational and that, and we can learn from mm -hmm. them, right? And so, and I think that's that's kind of what he wanted to bring to this project. Wow. Well, he did it because it's great. It is. And, and 
you are too. And the books, like they're fantastic and everyone should to grab a copy. Um, there's two of them, right? So stories of exceptional learners and then lessons from exceptional learners. And both links uh, are below and there's a discount there for people as well. From So thank you for... And to Zoltan and the team for offering that. As yes, well. multi multi multilingual matters. Yes, thanks thanks to them for for this. One last question. I think it's it's a good way for us to uh, wrap this up by asking a question that I like asking people every time they come on the podcast. Sandra, I think you know which one it is. It's yeah. the, so so Katarina. If you <laughs> no, don't be don't be. It's a very simple question. If you could have a gigantic billboard. Okay, with any message written on it, anything. This message is going to be sp spread out to the world. What would you have on it? Could be anything. Could be language like not learning. Not necessarily. Doesn't have to, to be language no, learning or no. Everything. It could be anything. It could be anything. Yeah. I think be kind to yourself and to others, but also to yourself. Um, yeah because I think you know that from from that kindness stems so many different things right like we build so many wonderful relationships with people we create these meaningful connections we we make these unique bonds um with languages and nothing ever good came out of not being kind right um especially to yourself um and to other people Right. And so if we come from a place of kindness, then hopefully we can build something better. Beautiful. Sorry, it's probably a, very generic. Um, it's but, a great message. I think I, it's a great I, message. I do believe it very strongly. I do, too. We all do. And I think we're going to be this is a this is going to be a great episode. Um, I hope everyone who was listening, watching this um, really enjoyed. Don't forget to get yourself a copy of stories from exceptional language learners who have achieved native-like proficiency and also um, lessons from exceptional language learners. So um, very, I think the difference is that stories is mostly for teachers, language learners, people who are more interested in the stories themselves. The stories so so themselves. stories is the compilation of each of the stories. So there's 30 sections for each of the 30 learners that kind of goes through each of their individual stories. And then lessons is more of, kind of takes a step back and looks at the bigger picture of, okay, what were the different um, things, mm -hmm. topics that emerged from the interviews with, uh, with everyone. So All that right. might be catered towards more researchers, but also teachers. Yeah, yeah. Katarina, thank you very, very much for your time, for your kindness um, to agree to join us on this podcast. We thoroughly enjoyed the experience and uh, we hope you did too. Thank you both so much. It's been so lovely to speak with you. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.